All right, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of the European VC podcast. You're about to witness the very first pitch meeting between one of the GPs Dave and I have been so lucky to back, namely Mark Pankala from Altitude and one of our very close friends, fellow creators in the VC space at Partner in Many Different Things, Michael Sitchmore, co-founder and partner at Broadhaven Ventures. And of course, we brought Michael because we love him, but also he's been doing some LP investing, quite some LP investing, which we thought would be really cool to share that experience with you all. We first recorded this episode at SuperVentured. For the attentive amongst the listeners here, you'll know that that was a bit a while ago, let's put it like that, right? But we really wanted to hold on it so we could announce it together with our investor into Mark's Funds, Altitude, which is, drum roll please, now, yay! Yeah. And as you know, this was, of course, a syndicate investment because as you also know, this is all Dave and I are about, bringing amazing angels together to back the best funds in Europe. So if this is on your radar, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We're always ready to party with whoever is ready to party with us. <laughs> yes. So if you are an angel looking to uh, do more in Europe, we'd love to have a chat. We'd love to have you in our community. Just drop us a line either through LinkedIn or email and we'll be super happy to have a chat with you. Now, let's get into it. I hope you enjoyed this show. And remember, if you love it, drop a review, follow the pod and go to eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Hey, Michael, how are you today? Good. Good, Good. to meet you, Mark. Shall we start with a very brief introduction about yourself, how you got to the point where you are today, and what you actually do with Broadhaven? And sure. Why? Yeah, so, so it's relevant, both the GP and LP side, and we, we work with funds in a number of ways. So um, we, have, we do three things at Broadhaven. Uh, we have an early-stage fintech VC fund. Uh, we invest our own capital. Uh, built on top of Broadhaven Capital Partners Investment Bank that's done about $100 billion of M&A transaction volume in financial services and fintech, business that my partner started. So we invest directly into fintech companies globally, have led seed rounds, also have followed on in a number of, uh, a number of our investments. Second bucket is we invest into funds. Uh, so we Great. mainly invest into emerging managers, fund one, fund two, generally sub $100 million funds, although we've had a few that are a little bit greater in size and scale. Yep but really looking for exposure beyond FinTech outside of our own expertise, where we can help managers as if they're founders. They just happen to be founders of asset management firms. And the third bucket is we incubate and help accelerate and start businesses. Great. So that bucket includes a wealth tech business that we sold to one of our portfolio companies. Uh, and then we're currently incubating a GP staking business uh, with one of our partners who is a former partner at Goldman. We have backing from a large Latin American bank and we're gonna build a, a GP staking firm uh, a little bit further down market from some of the bigger players like Dial. Um, in terms of some of the things we've done and background, so been in FinTech my entire career. Uh, started at Goldman Sachs on the principal strategic investments team uh, in London, investing into fintech companies, really capital market infrastructure. Mm. Uh, then got a call from a solar finance business called Mosaic uh, out in Oakland back in 2013. So joined Mosaic uh, as the first sales hire, built the sales team there. That business has now grown to about 11 billion in home solar loan originations. Fantastic. Backed by Warburg Pincus. Uh, business is doing very well. I was also a seed investor. And then uh, joined iCapital, uh, the platform that's really the infrastructure that's enabling the high net worth and retail channels to invest into private markets, into mm -hmm. alternative investment funds. Uh, so was early employee there, pre-product, built the sales team with two other guys, and we helped scale that platform to what is today about $153 billion or so of AUM, backed by all the banks, BlackRock, Blackstone, et cetera. Uh, I was a seed investor there as well. So spend a lot of time in alts, have seen funds, and have ended up in, and worked with a number of funds at iCapital, uh, helping, helping them to raise from the high net worth channel. And then at Broadhaven, we have a portfolio of 18 funds, everything from, we've done things in climate tech, so lower carbon, uh, we've done things in consumer, uh, like 776, uh, Goodwater Capital, data-driven yep. VC fund, uh, and then funds that are more focused on certain geographies, so tiny VC, yep. 
um, in, in Europe, Passion Capital. We just did a, a fund uh, recently that was a, a guy spun out from, from another fund in London. Uh, so we like the smaller emerging managers and we think that there's real opportunity, particularly at early stages with managers uh, in that regard. So yeah, we spend a lot of time in that space. Uh, we're not a fund of funds. Yep. We invest our own capital, uh, so it's principal capital. Um, so we're kind of like a hybrid of a, of a VC and a family office in a sense, um, hopefully bringing the best of both worlds. And then kind of underpinning all of that is I have a podcast and content platform called Alt Goes Mainstream, where I interview people in the alt space. So many of the large uh, alter alternative asset managers or asset managers who are doing mm -hmm. a lot in alts. I've had the CEOs of Franklin Templeton and Russell and Man Group, CIO of Calsters uh, on the podcast to help people understand what's going on in private markets and why yep. it's mainstreaming. Very impressive. Can you tell me a little bit more about your investment strategy as an LP? What do you look for when you look at emerging end managers? Are you an active passive LP? What's your average ticket size you feel comfortable? And moreover, can you just sketch the process? How long does yeah. it take? How do you take decisions? Absolutely, yeah. So I think the biggest thing for us with, with emerging managers is what is the unique edge? What's the differentiator that's going to make them a successful manager, particularly in the first time? And then mm -hmm. how can they again get to second, third fund? So how are they thinking about firm building more broadly? So I really like to break the process down into four categories, finding, picking, winning, and helping. And then in each of those areas, what's going to make a manager really different? And I think when we look at our portfolio of managers by either sector, geography, or strategy. We've tried to really find managers in each of those categories that have unique insight or unique edge or unique background. Goodwater is a great example. They have a team of data scientists finding consumer tech startups globally. That's a real unique edge. There are not a ton of firms that have, since 2014 when Goodwater started, yep. used data. So that's just an example of like, they have a unique edge, they had a unique background, partners from Kleiner and Maverick doing that. And I think when you think about what makes managers different. There needs to be something different and something that also makes sense mm -hmm. as to why that was the case. Chiwan and Eric both ran data-driven strategies at yep. the firms that they were at, had their own processes, and then formalized that when they got to Goodwater. So hearing that story helped us understand, okay, they have a chance to be successful and here's why yep. and here's how they're building the firm. So that's kind of how we think about managers. Uh, when it comes to being an LP, like I said, we think of uh, being an LP like being a VC. So fund managers are founders, just like founders work with their VCs, right? So we think of ourselves as an LP, as an active LP, one that helps founders, in this case, asset managers or fund managers, build their business. They have two customers. They, have L they need LPs and they need companies. So right. we can help them on the LP side. That's what I did at iCapital. I built the sales team, our investor network. Mm -hmm. So often we're helping connect our funds uh, to the LP community. That largely in fund one and fund two is generally the family office or wealth management channel because that's the space that's often allocating to emerging managers. So we're really helping them think about their fundraise, build their fundraise, understand how to pitch LPs, yep. and then connecting them to the right LPs to hopefully help them accelerate their, their, their fundraises. And we've helped a number of our managers raise capital or at the very least made a lot of introductions where Even if it's not fund one, maybe it's fund two or fund three where those LPs invest. Right. Um, and then we can help them on the company side too. So that's either connecting them with companies. And in a number of cases, we've actually collaborated with our managers when it's been in the fintech space where they may introduce us to a company or we may introduce them to one of our companies. Mm -hmm. And then we've worked together because <clears throat> we can add complementary features given our backgrounds in fintech. Um, so definitely active. And I think that that's one of the things that's, that's really important. Obviously, different LPs bring different things to the table. Yep, absolutely. But I think you're starting to see more LPs become active in various ways. What VC is doing with angel, inve angel investors and funds effectively is, is another great example yep. of that. Um, so we certainly believe that's the case. And then with funds, we've invested everything from $100,000 checks in smaller managers. Yeah. We've actually backed a number of managers who are sub 15, $20 million in their first funds. Right. We tend to find that those funds have the opportunity to perform pretty well given fund size. I do totally think agree. fund size really does drive your strategy. So we Absolutely. dig a lot into that. And then we've gone all the way up to three, $4 million commitments in, in certain funds. Yeah. Depending on the size and scale. Are you, scale are you of the typical strategy. first closing LP? Are you piggybacking on the final close? Any preference, or we've, are you we've flexible? Done, we've done both. On... It really yeah. just depends on kind of how we feel about the manager. Um, we have a process. My my partner and I uh, are the investment committee, so we meet the managers, yep. spend time with them, underwrite the funds, underwrite the strategies. Yep. We'll talk with founders. We'll talk with other LPs. 
and then make our decision from there. So like I said, we're, we're, not, a, we're not a traditional fund of funds. They're fund of funds we hold in high regard and have great respect for. Uh, I wouldn't consider us that, but we certainly see plenty of managers every year and, yeah. and try to really allocate and work with the emerging manager ecosystem. One last question. How does a typical process end-to-end looks like when you look at funds, whether it's an emergent fund or established one? Yeah, How so long does it take? What are you generally at? between one to two months uh, from when we first meet. So uh, it's meetings with myself. At some point, you'll probably meet my partner, Greg. Uh, yeah. And then um, it's, it's really spending a lot of time getting to know you, Obviously. your strategy, your team, what you've done in the past. And then particularly with first-time fund managers, I tend to think of them a lot like founders. You're really going off of their background and what they've done, who they've worked with. So references end up being a really big deal. And so talking with founders you've worked with, talking with other VCs you've worked with, and from our investing activities on the direct side as a fund, as a fund, Broadhaven Ventures, we tend to you know, know a number of VCs. We've sat on boards, I've sat on six yeah. boards. So know a lot of VCs and can talk to them about what it's like working with, with other managers, which ends up being really helpful in that regard because um, we can hopefully get a full picture. But generally, it's a one to two month process in terms of evaluating, underwriting, and then yeah, cool. working together. Anything I should take a particular focus on telling you about myself, about our fund, anything you just more I, interested I just in. want to hear your, yeah. your background and story. I think the, you know, understanding your background will help me understand what your edge is, what your yeah. differentiator totally. is, why you're, building, why, why you're building altitude and what's going to be different about it. And particularly, um, you know, I think with, with emerging managers, so much uh, rides on are you able to get access to great companies early? You may not have a brand. So what are you going to do? What's going to be your sourcing engine that's different? Yeah. And then how are you going to pick really well, which will drive returns? Great. So I'm not going to bore you, but I'm going to go all the way back. Um, I was uh, born in Poland, grew up in Germany, somehow ended up doing my high school in the US, which was great. Which, uh, was my first very important experience being by myself then. Uh, at the end of high school in Germany, I built my first company. I was 17. I was naive. I was young. I was uneducated and I had absolutely no idea. Ran that company and actually happened to sell, sell that company. Uh, I realized one thing, it was not me being smart, it was me just being very, very lucky. Uh, it was a very important um, point in my life uh, where I said, okay, cool, I obviously have to understand and learn how I can do this better, so I had a very good reason to study business. Uh, so I was sitting next to my peers, most of them studied business because they didn't know what to do, uh, and that's why they studied business, and I said, I actually really want to understand. While I was doing that, I figured, well, the only university where I started actually didn't have too many entrepreneurial courses, so I took a wise decision and took part of the money which I earned from my company and spent it myself, uh, invested myself actually, and studied abroad a lot in Dubai, Beijing, Sydney, traveled from all these places, and I was always fascinated by the same question, why are the same problems solved in a different way depending where you are? For me back then, it was the most obvious thing, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to find market efficiencies and tackle them with technology. So end of university, built my first tech company, first time I actually got in touch with venture capital, back then raised um, a significant amount for the days. Today would be a very bad pre-seed round, but um, back then it was quite a lot. Ran that company for four years and successfully bankrupted that company. So that didn't go, go well, but uh, I A, did a lot of learnings, and B, I said, cool. So I sold a company which was bootstrapped, and um, I built a company and bankrupted, which was VC Finance. I'm going to do it again. Before what I did do you think on that point uh, was your biggest learning as a founder? What would you do differently? Two major learnings which, I, uh, which, which kind of kept me up uh, for quite a while. One was not being so much in love with the product. Um, as a first-time tech founder, you're so focused on the product, you want to ship the perfect shiny product with all the functions and features which nobody uses. So it's 80-20 rule. Try and error, iterate, iterate, iterate until you understand what the product, um, kind of what kind of advantage it delivers to the customer and what the customer actually wants. And then based on the knowledge, you should iterate and just refine the product and just improve it. And I was just very much in love with the product. I wanted to ship the perfect, shiny, beautiful product with all the functions and learned along the way we burned a lot of money doing that instead of actually going to the market, spending money into marketing, generating sales. And um, that was very important. And be like a certain degree of humbleness, like understanding it's like, hey, if you raise money and if you're actually depending on other VCs to give you more money to kind of keep on going, you should either have a very clear view about how to raise the next round or you should just become cash flow positive. So the second one is unlikely. So obviously you have to be very cautious about how do you spend the money, where do you get, what kind of KPIs you're going to deliver when you go out the next time. And when you do that, you should have a certain assurance that this is what your uh, or future VCs want to see in order to give you more money. 
So for me, it was very meaningful. Um, and then I thought like, okay, before I'm going to build a new company, I should maybe join a VC in order to understand how they operate. What do they do? How do they assess companies? And for me, it was the missing piece. And I said, I'm going to do this for a year, then I'm going to know how to do it, and I'm going to go back and build a company. Thesis was perfect, spot on. There was a small flaw. It didn't take me one year, it took me 10. So uh, either I'm a very slow learner, or there was just simply more to learn than expected. I always claim it's the second, it just sounds cooler. So um, I joined Mountain Partners, um, uh, moved to Switzerland, and I, looking back, it kind of felt like an executive MBA in venture capital because I did the whole journey. Being an entrepreneur, I started very classically when I joined Morton Partners as an investment manager, invested into early stage companies. Then I joined the, with my colleagues, built a global venture development team, so we nationalized companies between Europe, Middle East, Southeast Asia and India, which was very cool. And then we've been building company building infrastructures, like literally bottom up, like from a legal, financial, operational point of view. Because we thought back then that's the best way to actually enter markets where we have not been active in order to A, understand the market, B, build the ecosystem and the network which is relevant and then on top actually put an SPV or in the best case a fund to actually invest into early stage companies. And the second half of my career actually was very much engaged with building, running and operating funds. So back then uh, we were looking about where can we go in the world and um, we've been very exposed to Europe, which was our home turf and like uh, Southeast Asia, Middle East and, and India. And we thought we have two blank spots, one is Africa and one in Latin America. And Africa was simply too early, so we kind of uh, took a deep dive into Latin America. We're very lucky that we made great teams on the ground, um, uh, and we actually did something very atypical. We bought three funds. You're not going to hear that story too often. And on that point, that's, that's yeah. fascinating. So, one, you decided to go to a different geography. Would love to hear what made you excited about geography like Latin America and the dynamics of that startup yeah. ecosystem in terms of how you think about startup ecosystems yeah. and, and investment opportunities. Two, what did you look at when deciding to buy a fund? Because in a sense, you were an LP, in a yeah. sense, both an LP and a GP, yep. right? So you had to evaluate what a fund looked like, why you wanted to pick that fund to partner True. with and buy. So how did you think about that? And then obviously that, that may inform some yeah. of the ways that you're thinking today. Back in the days, uh, it must have been 2014-15, we, we kind of had the feeling that I'm um, looking at emerging markets, it's like you have a time machine. If you are in established markets, uh, you know exactly what kind of classified horizontals, what kind of startups coming in which phase. So we looked at Latin America and we tried to detect where is the market at the moment and what is going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And for us, we, we found a lot of indications where we said, okay, this is the tipping point. You have a lot of talent, people going to the US, um, having the first startup experience, education there, coming back to Latin America. All of a sudden you had like lots of governmental um, institutions putting money into funds. You had like an angel um, ecosystem. So we said, okay, something's happening here. And um, we are very right about that feeling. Um, it took longer than expected, obviously. And uh, the second thought was a bio-build decision. Like, are we going into a market where we don't speak the language, don't know the culture, don't know the people and don't have the network? Or are we going to buy into an existing infrastructure um, in order to touch ground on that and just build what we aim to build? And for us, the second one made most sense. What did that market look like in terms of the other funds out there? There was, you know, Kazek, Monashis were, were the big brand name funds. Yep. I think Elevar was there a bit. There yeah. were a few other funds that, that were there kind of in specific countries. How did you think about where the fund that you ended up buying, Mountain Nazca, yeah. ended up fitting into that whole ecosystem and where could you create an advantage? So when we looked at the market, one thing was very obvious. All of them were early stage uh, VC funds. So you had the angel market and you had lots of governmental grants and then you had your early stage VC funds. So our main concern back then was actually what's happening afterwards. And we just thought, okay, if the market is moving as fast as we expected to, these funds are going to move into second generation, third generation funds, and they will likely raise actually funds for series A, B or opportunity funds to kind of fuel their own portfolio. And actually this happens after all. When we look at the market and said, how can we actually distinguish between others and where's the edge? It was like everywhere else, it was the people. We, we had a very big trust in the people which we've been working with. Um, they had the ability to source fantastic deals and engage with great founders. We were just very lucky that it was just not our instinct. They actually executed upon what they told us. And the good thing is we didn't buy a blind pool. So uh, when we bought into these funds, we already had a view about the portfolio they constructed at that time. We know exactly how much money they have left. We kind of uh, jointly with the teams on the ground did like the final closing. So we had some room to kind of um, build this fund jointly with them. Still them just being in the driver's seat, managing everything because they know the market. So. At the end of the day, it was a thing about trust and about assessing the managers uh, to take the right decision. And 
to be honest, I mean, we were just very lucky that there was the point where the whole market started and all of a sudden all the American funds started to deploy rather in series A, B and C and you had SoftBank coming in with a 5 billion fund. So uh, all of a sudden you just said like, okay, boom, 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 everybody's raising money. So it was a very interesting time. So what jumped out to you about Mountain Nazca and what, what made you say, I want to buy this fund and then how did you run the fund when you were there? Here again, it's team. That was the, the most obvious one. We actually liked the portfolio. It was very close to our philosophy. And one other thing which kind of completely aligned with what we were looking for, they had two company building infrastructures. And we said, if we want to enter emerging markets, we want to have company builders. And they had both. They had company building, um, part of the money from the fund they actually put into company building. The other one were direct investments. And that's exactly what we've done in other markets. So we felt super comfortable with the actual approach and obviously the team. And that led us to say, okay, this is the perfect match. And then walk, walk me through some of your investments at Mountain Nazca. What are some of the ones that went well and why? And yeah. what are some of the ones that, that didn't go so well? I would say the very early investments, which went well, the most prominent was Kavak. Uh, did we know that's going to go well? No. Did we had a good feeling about it because it was a copycat back in the days from role models, which we have seen in other markets, which worked at least back in the days very well? Yes. So that's what I meant when I said earlier, we kind of had the feeling we have a time machine. You, you knew exactly which kind of models yeah. you have to plug in into a certain market because you know that the consumers are there or the, the SMEs are there or like whomever yeah. is uh, buying these products. And for these specific types, it worked well. E-commerce in general worked fantastically well. So it kind of, uh, we had the feeling, okay, this is the next evolution in that market. It will be e-commerce, it will be direct to consumer. So we placed a lot of big bets on that. Um, these ones worked well. The ones where we targeted SMEs, where we targeted enterprises, these were tough because the market is simply a different one. Um, so uh, I think uh, if we would have put all the money rather than e-commerce and direct to consumer, it would have worked way better. Doing the same thing right now in Europe would not work at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it was a lot of luck involved. How big was the fund? What were the average check sizes where did you come in and as entry point? Yeah. And, and what did returns look like? When we started, um, all funds were like in the ballpark of 15 to 20 million. So uh, we had three yeah. funds in place, Colombia, Chile, and Mexico. Ticket sizes, we always claimed that we, we want to lead rounds, pre-seed and seed. Um, and there was a big spread between like entry tickets that could be ranging between 300K and 1 million. And we understood very early that we want to keep a follow-on reserve, even though the funds were quite small. So we did that and uh, we, we said, okay, we're going to build a picking pool, which is big enough and back the proven winners, which we did. And we were just lucky that we backed the right ones. So the economics worked perfectly fine and uh, they've been very successful back in the days. And how much of your time were you spending actually underwriting deals and running the fund versus having the local investors. So what I'm trying to get at is really understanding you as a fund manager, because now with Altitude, you're the one building the strategy, underwriting deals. Let me tell you a little bit about oh, my journey uh, past and then I'm going to yeah, go, go, sure. go back to that. So um, uh, after my time at Let, um, uh, Mountain Partners, I did two more things. Obviously, as a VC, you, you kind of get the hybrid that you can be a fantastic angel as well. So I started uh, angel investing, invested a couple of funds. Um, like 30 in total. Um, that was very cool, learned a lot as well from a different perspective because you don't have leverage, you don't have not too much to say, what you bring to the table is not money, it's networking knowledge. That's why people let you into great rounds. Um, and Parable, but the third company, that company by now is very profitable, uh, growing quite fast, don't have to be operational there anymore. And four years ago, <clears throat> I turned father and something biochemically happened for me in my brain and I was <clears throat> thinking about a lot of things and what I want to do with my life and that's I think what you do when you have kids and I, I just thought it's time to move on, so time to do something new after 10 years in the same company. So that's already weird being for so long in a company. So I, I, I left the company and then I had, uh, I was quite afraid for one day. Uh, I thought I'm just stupid, why would I do that? And then I said, no, cool, I can do whatever I want, I have a blank canvas. And everyone said like, hey Mark, go and join another VC as a partner, that makes a lot of sense in the world. Um, so I had lots of very good um, discussions with people and figured, Yep, I want to stay in VC, but none of them made sense to me. Uh, in, in one particular aspect, I didn't feel either comfortable with the team or I didn't feel comfortable with the thesis or the stage where, where they were in. So I, I thought like, okay, there's nothing I can either bring to the table or like uh, change within their settings. So I said, it doesn't feel right. And then I eventually ended up joining none of them. Uh, but interestingly, uh, some came back and said, it's totally fine. What about we do something else? And that was mainly what I've been done, uh, been doing in the past 
two years, two and a half years, I've been working with emergent fund managers, mainly in Europe, as they have all the same problems. So like if you build a fund, the likelihood that you have done it before, I've seen it before, is literally zero. So um, as I had some expertise in building funds, structuring funds, operating funds, I actually joined many advisory boards, ICs, and helped fund managers to build their funds. And um, until I woke up one morning and realized I'm everything I never wanted to be, I'm a consultant. I didn't like that. So I said, okay, I should change that. So I said, okay, I'm not, not going to do this anymore. Um, and that was like roughly one year ago. And that was the moment when Altitude was born, or the, literally the idea about Altitude was born. So I was sitting with one of my former colleagues, Ingo, and we've been working together at Mountain Partners for over 10 years. We, we have a very broad angel portfolio together. So aside of working together, we've been friends, we've been angel investors together, and we, we were joking around, let's, let's build a fund. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to build a fund. That's how usually how it starts. And we're like, okay, how would a picture-perfect fund look like? While we were having the first discussions, um, I reconnected with a good friend of mine, Videsha. We know each other for over eight years. Um, she's a very experienced VC as well in the ecosystem for over 10 years. Um, started with um, Profoundus Capital in London, and then she actually built Redstone uh, in Germany. From there, she was one of the uh, first female GPs in Germany for Signals, the, the CVC arm from Signal Iduna. And I, it was, we were thinking about doing a podcast. We're like, hey, let's do a podcast for emergent fund managers. That's going to be very cool. We're going to take very small, very specific topics and we're going to discuss them. And while we were doing that, I was telling her, like, look, I'm going to build a fund. Do you mind looking at what I think what I would like to do? And she said, yes, sure. So out of that, we said, no, let's do this together. Uh, like, not only her input was great, but we, we literally felt like, no, this is perfect. So there was the three of us, and we said, okay, let's start. What's the picture-perfect fund for us? And then we actually went one step back. So like, what can we bring to the table, and what can we sell to an LP? So what we did is we said, okay, where are we? Videsha's in London, Ingo's in Zurich, I'm in Berlin, so where are we going to invest? Well, we're going to do this in, in Dach in UK. That makes all the sense in the world. That's where we have our home turf. Then we said, okay, what have we done as a GP? We have deployed over 100 million and more than 500 transactions as a team. All of us have been in VC for 40 years together. We said, pre-seed and seed, that's, that's what we know, that's what we understand. So that was crystal clear. And then we said, okay, we've mainly done B2B and lead ticket investing. Okay, that's crystal clear. So we mapped this and we said, cool. If we go to an LP telling them we're an early stage fund and pre-seed and seed doing B2B as a lead ticket investor, we only have 80 other funds doing the exact same thing. We said, okay, we're not going to go out with that. So we focused on um, something you said earlier because that's literally my pitch line. What does a VC do at the end of the day? Sourcing, picking, winning, repeat, building a defensible edge. And we said, okay, being an early stage fund, where can we actually do something different which is meaningful? And we said the only thing meaningful where we can create a differentiation point aside of our track record and that we are nice people and that we try to be very smart is create an edge around our deal sourcing. So our journey started with looking at other funds. How do other early stage funds source deals? So most of them, of course, have strong GPs and they have a network. Very biased, very closed, and you don't see the full market. We're like, okay. What else do they do? The second thing they do is um, they try to gather like super angels and exited entrepreneurs to bring them deals. And we're like, why would you do that? That's the stupidest thing in the world. Why would I pay somebody money or carry to bring me a deal? I will likely see myself because we are in this ecosystem and it's a very small ecosystem and they're working with the top 1% of founders and angels. The deals they see, I see myself. And I said, that doesn't make sense. Then we said, okay, how does the 99% of the other market look like and who's doing that? So we started looking at angels and we figured, wow, in Europe you have 300,000 active angels. And we're like, that's impressive. What's the fat tail of active angels doing three, five tickets a year with a ballpark of, I don't know, 10 to 50K? It's a very big market. It's like, how can we get to these angels? And by nature, they don't want to work with VCs. Why? What's the advantage of getting a VC into the same ground as you are? There is none. They're either already on board and you piggyback and you just like put your ticket. And if you bring them, you might run to the danger that you lose your allocation or they put you in a pool or whatsoever. So by nature, they're not really interested. And we said, okay, if we can't um, sell them the value proposition of bringing us to a deal and sharing with us, we have to give them something to make it appealing for them. That's when Open or the idea about Open Angel was born. We said, okay, what about we create a strategy where we make the angels come to us? And that's exactly Open Angel. We said, okay, what we like about the fat tail of angels is they're unbiased and they're informal networks. So what we said is, we're going to give 
every angel who brings a deal to us where he invests his own money and if the deal is in our thesis, 100K throughout the trust agreement. So we supercharge him. For, and each, for each deal? For each deal, yeah. And this will come out of the fund? This will come out of the fund. Yeah. I'll explain how it comes to, to, together yeah. and, and why we do this. And uh, we said, okay, that makes sense. Why would he do this? Well, because we give him the full carry upside of the 100K. Looking at the market again, an average ticket of an angel in Europe is 20K. So the value of the carry is the exact same as his 20K. So either he cuts the valuation by half or he doubles his return. We said, okay, that's a good value proposition. So furthermore, as we're not on the cap table, it's a trust agreement. What we bring to the table is the 100K for the startup. Does it move the needle? No, it should not. But what is relevant for the startup, if it's a pre-seed startup, he has a natural lead ticket investor on board without being on the cap table with associated um, signaling risk. And we try to build conviction over six to nine months and put a lead ticket term sheet before they even go out. On that point, we've seen a lot of VC funds do this in various ways, try, really try to get to the earliest stages to get as much coverage and as best a deal flow sourcing yep. engine as they can. How do you ensure that you win that deal when that time comes? Because it's, it's one thing for the angel to have a relationship yep. with the founder, but doesn't necessarily mean that you as the fund manager will. And we've seen that work out often where the angel's the one inter interfacing with the company and the, the manager's not. And then they don't win the deal or, or if a big brand name comes in. Yep. The founders uh, very, very, very obvious question. That wants to, wants good to that I had this conversation already a hundred times, so I have a quite good answer. So uh, we thought about this obviously, and obviously we want to be engaged with the early stage startups. So we want to help them actively, um, like on their way. Uh, and uh, what we do as well is one thing which we actually very much like. Like looking at founders, they have so many challenges. So we said, okay, we're going to provide coaches to to the founders we work with. And uh, it's not going to be us, it's going to be people we're going to pay from the GP. And actually, it could be anything. It could be related to the business, it could be related to the leadership, it could be related to all the stress they have running a business and actually raising the next round. And aside of that, we open our network. So we don't want to be the passive, passive I'll give you 100K check investor. We want to be active helping you on the one hand, but as well understanding how you operate. Because conviction building in early stage is a tricky thing. If I invest as a lead tech investor, I'm already in. I don't have to build conviction. I'm going to see whether it's going to work or not. But the 100K is not going to harm me. So what I want to build is I want to build a conviction pool, which is rather like a collaborative investment approach, see deals. And from these deals, we're going to do up to 30 or 40. I'm going to pick the ones where I do significant or meaningful follow-on investment as a lead investor. So two questions there. One, sure. how do you make sure you're spending enough time with each of those companies to yep. know that... A, you can build conviction, and, and B, that the founder starts to have a relationship with you or Altitude. And two, how do you build conviction? What's your process for yeah. building conviction? And then over that period of time, yeah. figuring out this is the right investment to do, because you, you can't do all, all four. Uh, absolutely, so, totally agree. So ABC is not a scalable business. So um, we're three partners, we know exactly what our capabilities are and we know exactly how much time we can literally spend in an early stage with the company. So that's why we said, okay, there's a maximum of maybe 30, maybe 40 at the very best, which we could like not actively but not passively, somewhere in the middle, manage and build conviction. So what does conviction building mean for us? A, it's the personal fit. Do we believe that this is a great person with a certain skill set, domain expertise? That's the one thing. The second one is they sell something to us when we invest and then we have six to nine months to see whether this is becoming reality. Is he selling that he's going to build a perfect product and bring it to the market in the next six months? Is he selling us, look, I'm going to have, I don't know, 100K in annual recurring revenues, buy that and that. So I can actually not only see what kind of person that is, how they execute and how they run their business, I can as well have a glimpse about how they built the product, how they built the team and what kind of KPIs they are realizing with but like Do you have a system for figuring out and benchmarking companies one versus the other that are in that portfolio or no? No, what we built is like we, we come from a very strong scorecard approach, not only on taking this investment decisions, but as well evaluating whether investment is a good investment or a bad one. So we, we try to do it rather numeric than like just uh, having the, the, the quality approach because if I actively manage one person, my colleagues Videsh and Engel don't. So they absolutely have to 100% rely on what I tell them. That's why we add the numeric part and say, okay, look, 
what did we see what happened in the meantime and is this something where we have strong conviction that this could like be in the next uh, phase something which is relevant for us and obviously we can cross match if they, if they maybe did iterations or changes which are not in line with our thesis anymore so that's important if I sell to my LPs and tell you like look I'm going to invest into that specific sphere and you say hey this is great this is where we're very interested in and end up with a portfolio which is completely different I make a fool out of myself so it's an alternative way to see whether they stick with what they do or they iterate or completely change what they want to do. And, but that's just one part. So um, we said we're going to focus on the sourcing edge. We have another sourcing tool um, where we work with other GPs. It sounds counterintuitive, but we created a hypothesis saying we believe that the anti-portfolio of every fund is equally good as their own portfolio. The Hall of Fame of DLC didn't do. So we said, what does actually happen with all the deals where great VCs say no to? So you look at 100 deals, 10 of them may be great, and you maybe end up with doing one or 0.1% of that. What happens with the nine deals which are great, but which you don't do? And why don't you do them? And we figured there's so many reasons why they not do them without making the deal a bad deal. Too early, too late, common interest issue, you don't hit the equity target, um, one GP says no whatsoever. Um, it doesn't make it a bad deal. And uh, so we created a program to uh, work with other GPs. It's an invite-only program where they share their deal flow of the deals they don't do with us. So we don't hijack deals. We actually build close relationships with other VCs and they can do a favor to, it's interesting, you build conviction, you work with a founder, you want to help them, it drops out of the funnel, you say no, you still want to help them. Do the GPs share with you why they passed? And do you have yes. a, a process it's, it's almost for capturing all of that Mandatory. And we believe in one thing. We believe in pre-qualified deals. Looking at the sourcing engine we built, we don't want to see more deals. We want to see better deals. And this is our claim. Mm -hmm. Creating better access earlier. With the angels, the angel looks at 50 deals, does one. I have a pre-selection. You will tell me it's adverse selection. I will say, well, I have to start somewhere. I don't want to manage one million deals. I want to manage the best deals of yep. the one million deals. With the GPs, it's the same. They look at deals, the hundred, they take 10, they send me the nine. They don't send me hundred. At this point, do you have, do you have any data on which of those two buckets has turned into better deal flow for you? Yep. And if there are better companies? based on the deals that you've done to date, if, you, if you've done any deals at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well I can't tell you about like, how the deals would have performed. I can tell you where we have the feeling, it's a subjective feeling, whether the quality is better, A, and the deal flow better. Um, it's definitely Open Angel. So other GPs, the likelihood that we see these deals is higher. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a fact. And what we particularly like about the long tail of angels is that it's unbiased and informal. So A, we meet new angels. B, we see deals we would have never seen before. And C, we can actually build a community of angels which we can plug into deals we do either way because they bring domain expertise, knowledge, and so on. That's what we focus on. So the second part, side of the sourcing, uh, and that's a core element of our DNA, is of course our thesis. So when I said we, we're going to be like a lead ticket investor, early stage, and DACH, that's fantastic, but what is the exact positioning we're looking for? We believe that there's going to be um, an SME tech gap. So what we mean by that is looking at the market right now, the SMEs in Europe is the biggest uh, provider of jobs. They, they, for the economy, it's the most important aspect of the economy. And looking at the market environment, we believe um, there's a change force event. So lots of things are changing. One is inflation, interest, uh, everyone is very distressed. In order to stay alive or competitive, you have to do two things. And we believe in these two things and that's the core of what we invest in. One is automation and the other one is sustainability. Automation, why? Because you have to increase efficiency, productivity, and margins, and we believe you can only do that with technology. The second thing is sustainability, and this is mainly driven by the regulatory framework. So just looking at the ecosystem, governments say, hey, look, you have to be ESG compliant, you have to be mindful with the resources, and this pays into your supply chain, it pays to hiring, it pays to so many aspects of your daily doing as an SME, and therefore we as well believe you can only do this with technology. This is basically the core element of what we do. The SME tech gap in automation and sustainability. And we identified a special quadrant, we call it Severus, where we say there is SMEs, the startups, which build a B2B product, start with SME and then go up the ladder and serve enterprises. What's interesting is you can't do it vice versa. You can start as an enterprise company and then go down the ladder. The most successful cases in Europe start as we have a customer, it's SMEs, 
It's faster, it's easier, you don't have to customize, and then you go up the ladder. So bread and butter is SME, and the sherry on top will be enterprise. Uh, what do you look for in those types of businesses that are serving SMEs that gives you that idea that those, those will be the ones that can get in that wedge with small to medium-sized businesses or, or can do like the, the land and expand sales starting with kind yeah. of at the, at the, consu the, the prosumer, consumer level and then yeah. get up to the, the, the true enterprise sale. Yeah. Um, maybe not just swiping the credit card yeah. by the individual employee, but it goes to the CFO and then they're making a big buying decision. Like what are some of the things that you're really looking for in those types of businesses and that you're finding? Well, obviously it's a long haul, so it's not like if we could detect it from day one, yeah. I would be genius and uh, I would yeah. raise my fund in a blink of an eye. Um, but there, there's uh, certain things. Obviously, um, the higher degree of customization in SME, like uh, if this your target group is, the lower the likelihood that you can go up the ladder. So we believe that you have to create a product which has a certain base and with that base you actually target SMEs. And then when you go up the ladder, you have course have to have a like addressable market which is relevant enough to do that otherwise you would not do it the the particular thing about enterprises is you customize a lot the sales cycle is very long a b you customize a lot but there's a big reward average contract values are very high retention is very high and of course if you build a very broad business with a big addressable market you can build the stellar unicorns or decacorns and we believe in two things if you only do enterprise it takes very long to create revenues a and b it's very, very hard to get to that point because you have to go throughout multiple funding rounds to get to that point. But if your bread and butter is SMEs, you can show that what you do is working and then slowly move up the ladder. So A, it's closer to cash flow and B, um, you learn along the way, you iterate and then you find the, the, like the, the customer fit and then you actually go up the ladder. And this is what we're looking for. So we talked a lot about the push. I like to think of, of winning deals about the push and the pull. So the push is you talked about that yeah. you have Angel Network, Open Angel, you have your thesis that you've put out. What about the poll? Why will founders choose you as opposed to some other VC? Yeah, uh, it's the hardest question to answer, especially as an emerging fund manager. We've been doing this for like all of us over 10 years. And uh, of course, we A, sell a brand, B, we sell a network, and C, we sell a certain expertise. All of us have been SME uh, or like B2B investors. We've always been active in early stage and we have our local networks. And of course, we claim that we can plug in lots of things which some other VCs could but maybe not as excellent as we do and one thing is and this is a two-way street open angel I mean what's the most valuable thing you're gonna have in an early stage um, uh, as a startup well you have maybe some VCs but who's bringing real value to the table throughout their domain expertise their network and like um, the things they can literally do very well it's usually the angels that's very interesting and that's why we built open angel we want to build this high caliber community of people which we can take and plug into deals so we invite them to the deals where we say hey this company is an sme company in that uh, specific industry you probably need this and this and this angel because they cannot only open doors for sales they can give you the experience the expertise mm -hmm. and as well reputation and this is something we want to bring to the table, aside of like all the other perks which most of the VCs do. But uh, we just have the spirit and DNA of an early stage yeah. investor and we, we're not willing to even move up the ladder in further generations. So great segue into, I want to talk about the numbers. So yeah. let's go through the numbers. Uh, I want you to break down the fund construction. Mm -hmm. So size of the fund, yeah. check size per deal, ownership. Because really where I want you to walk me through is walk me through the journey of getting to a 1x fund, so what will return a fund, what will get to a 3x fund, and beyond. So, so let's start yeah. with the numbers, and then yeah. that'll walk us through to how you think about portfolio construction and then the returns. So target fund size 60 million, and when we thought about the construction, we were very much driven by um, one single aspect. How can we build a big enough picking pool to do very, very good follow-on investments? So we splitted our entry investment pool into the collaborative uh, 100K tickets, which mm -hmm. will be roughly 30. And we're going to act as a very classic lead investor in pre-seed and seed. So we're going to lead mm -hmm. construct uh, rounds and... What ticket size and what kind of ownership yeah. stakes? So the 100K for us ownership is irrelevant. Yeah. We just want to get in in order to see and follow on. Those at certain types of valuation caps or... or no, we, uh, we would ob obviously love to see pre-seed rounds uh, for the 100K tickets. Looking at the lead tickets, we're going to do 50% in pre-seed and 50% in seed. I mean, it's a little bit fluid. Some people skip the round. It, it's, then it's rather a matter of valuation. Still, 
still we do have an equity target. Obviously, just looking at um, the total addressable market, the terminal value potential, and looking at what we need to return, and every fund investment yep. has to have the potential to be a fund returner, we're looking at equity ownerships between 10 and 15%. Comma, mm -hmm. We're only going to deploy 30% of the fund into entry investment. So we keep a very, very big follow-on reserve, which has two reasons. Why? One, um, we build a very broad picking pool, 50 companies, 30 collaborative, 20 lead ticket investments. So we have the strong conviction that we can identify seven to eight companies which are relevant enough to follow on. Mm -hmm. And B, um, we believe that, well, we're in a recession right now, so it might take one year, two years, or three years, we want to be in the position to follow on into companies where we have conviction, this is a great company with strong fundamentals, but it's just hard to raise. Putting us in a position where we just depend on others, like most collaborative VCs do it, like I put one check, I can't follow on, and what happens if somebody comes to you and says, okay, we're going to structure a pay-to-play round. If you don't participate, you're going to be at the end of the funnel, and literally the likelihood that you can see money is going to be zero. So we want to be prepared to A, pick the best deals and follow on, and B, protect our like, position in these companies and even increase our stakes in the winning companies which we identified in our portfolio. To summarize it, why did we construct it this way? We want to have the upside potential of an early stage mm -hmm. fund, but the risk potential of a rather seed to maybe series A fund. So how much capital will be in the pre-seed seed bucket of the fund of the 60? And how much will be in the, the pro rata follow-on series A, maybe series B? Yeah, just looking at the, I'm going to include the collaborative tickets. I mean, yep. if it's 30, it's not going to move yep. the needle. It's 5% yep. of the fund, roughly yep. 3 million. Yep. Looking at the pre-seed and seed allocations where we actually lead rounds, we're going to invest in the range from like 500 at the very, very lowest, depending on the valuation, to 1.5 million as an entry ticket. So pre-seed and seed. That's going to be the range. And we as well always try to be in the ballpark of 10 to 15% equity ownership upon entry investment. Investment. Looking at the ones which don't work, I couldn't care less if I dilute or if I write them off. And what's relevant after all is kind of doing the right picks and the follow-on investments in order to maximize our equity holding to kind of go down the whole waterfall, uh, including all rounds and all dilution steps to have significant companies which can return the fund and actually provide a, like a above average uh, return in terms of. So if you're thinking 500k to million dollar checks and you're thinking 15 to 20% ownership. So you're thinking you can find a bunch of pre-seed and seed deals at you know, three, three, four million dollar valuations? Yeah, totally. Well, what we're seeing right now is obviously, of course, uh, looking at 21 to 22, we've been in a very different market. Um, looking at pre-seed rounds, and active, we're actually looking at the moment at one um, with a 3.5 million pre-money valuation. It's not going to be all the time like this. And that's why I said it's a bit fluid. It doesn't have to be 500K. It can be 750K mm -hmm. for a pre-seed round. If we have strong conviction, if it's a serial founder, fantastic market, we even go higher. So I think I keep this number fluid in order to hit my equity target instead of being stiff and say, I invest 500K and 1 million because that wouldn't make sense. How flexible are you on ownership targets too? Like, Would you be flexible on ownership if it's maybe slightly more expensive seed round or pre-seed round? but you think there's big opportunity, maybe you're also co-investing with another VC, um, or are you gonna stay very steadfast to the, the no, ownership target? I have one strong conviction about investing into companies. For me, it's not the pre-money valuation, it's the exit potential, so the terminal value. If I um, invest into a company which bears the opportunity to sell it for 50 million, and I can enter for a 2 million valuation, yeah, maybe it's interesting, but it will not return my fund after all. But if I have a company where I have stellar founders in a great market, maybe even with an advanced product, um, and I can enter on a 15 million valuation, and I would have to go to the high end of what I would be willing to actually pay as an entry investment, I would probably likely do that if I see the opportunity that they build a $3 billion company. So at the end of the day, I think it's a case-by-case -case approach, even though uh, we try to set a certain rules and of course looking just at our IC, how we take decisions, we created a framework that we A, jointly take decisions, B, that the decisions are numeric and at the end of the day we have to justify towards ourselves that it makes sense to do this kind of investment. How do you think about the incentives in your portfolio construction? Because roughly, you know, like 20 million of the 60, uh, assuming you get to 60, mm -hmm. is going to be really early stage but then the, yep. the remainder is going to be in reserve. So we're talking like 40 million bucks or so. Yep. How do you think about that when you think about the like where where you'll drive returns from with the fund? Do you think it'll come from the early stage bucket, or will it really come from the the follow on bucket? That's because because those the business is a little more de risked. Absolutely. How do you think about that and where you're going to spend yeah. your time? 
looking at the hard facts, IR, TVPI, uh, it will definitely come from the early bucket. Looking at the absolute returns, it will come from the bucket afterwards. If I create a, a 3x on my 20 million, it's going to be more relevant for me than creating a 6x on uh, the, the small amount which I deployed before. So um, that's why we try to balance both uh, in order to have outsized returns, but as well have a certain de-risking factor on top of it. But what we never wanted is to kind of um, cap the upside. So we want to have an upside being able to actually return a 10x fund. But as well, I want to have a small downside protection by saying, look, I'm going to deploy a big chunk of the capital, not in pre-seed, but rather in seed and series A, where I have more conviction, more visibility, and uh, where I say, okay, it makes sense to kind of put a bigger check. Would I put a $2 million check in a pre-seed round? Likely not. I mean, in theory, $1 billion exit at seed investment, if you own, I'm saying you're, I'm assuming you're going to go from 15 to 5% ownership. Yeah. Um, that should be almost a fun return. So is yes. that kind of how you think about it? You're underwriting every deal. Uh, I'm very happy to send you our fund, fund model. That's yeah. exactly what we did. We came actually from, from the construction perspective saying, what does a deal have to bring when I invest ABC into pre-seed seed when I do no follow-on, one follow-on, follow-on plus power law. So even like a third uh, round yeah. where I participate, hold my product stack in order to get to a fund returner. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is how long is it going to take me? Can I do a pre-seed investment in year four? No, because the moment where there's value creation in my pre-seed investment in year four, I have six years, yep. there's no value creation. Yep. So even though I hit a home run, I can't divest at the moment where I'm at the peak. I'm divesting way too early. So it doesn't make sense to subsequently do pre-seed and seed investment at the end of my investment period. It yep. makes more sense to do a strong follow-on where I know, okay, this is a mature startup, which I can divest at the peak. So we're coming from a time frame perspective and we're coming from a risk return perspective when we constructed the portfolio. Yeah. Real quick, because I know we're running out of time, yeah. just where are you with current capital raised? When do you want to do your first close? Have you made any investments? And then, and then we'll wrap up and we can do a follow-up. Fantastic. Um, we've done one GP investment. Uh, we started our fundraising earlier this year in January. Um, we are very good in advanced talks with three uh, anchor investors. We're confident. Like fund of funds or no, actually not fund of funds. It's, it's it's family offices, and okay. and these are for us at the moment the way to go. We're in very good talks with various fund of funds. We started uh, the process with the classic uh, institutional investors, which you would go to as a uh, first time fund, and we're very confident that we do a first closing towards end of summer um, with the current setting we're having. So we have commitments. Okay. We're rolling these into hard what's, commitments as we What's speak. the minimum viable fund that you could start investing out of raising if you don't get to sixty? To make it work how we see it, uh, 20 million. That's the, the, the bottom line to make things work how we envision them to be. But uh, we're confident that we will raise more than that. Well, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked uh, if you get there. So this was fantastic. Great, great to meet. Really enjoyed fantastic. hearing about your fund. Um, would love to follow up and learn more because there's a lot to dig into on the model. Yeah, absolutely. I think the sourcing Fully engine agree. is really interesting. And that's, I think, a, obviously, that, that'll drive the deal flow. So that's the key because you're, really, yeah. you're, you're really hoping to get larger checks in over time. Um, we've seen that model work in certain cases. We've seen other seed and emerging managers really yep. just have no reserve strategy, so they can put all their investments into their initial check and have, a, have more shots on goal. So it's, it's interesting to see different strategies. Yep. There's not necessarily one right or wrong, um, but I'm looking forward to learning more. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. Let's do yeah. a couple follow-up. Thank you. From Likewise. The... Good to meet. Bye. This was their finest hour. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting.